And, uh, and you think about a guy who was a, uh, growing up in a time where his dad was a carpenter and he's learning to carpent. Yeah, I mean, he's walking with his dad. So I always say, don't, don't buy no wimpy Jesus picture, right? Because uh, um, strong, bold. And is it true that a lot of those pictures that you kind of have, it's the eyes. Isn't it the eyes that kind of get you? It is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just tell you that uh, the most beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ uh, that you'll find in all the Bible are right here in Revelation. And uh, we'll kind of start to pluck into one of those uh, today. Um, you have uh, cards like this that each time we meet you can fill out. If you have a question, I'm going to share a couple of questions that came in this past week. And then we'll jump into verse number four. First question that came in so much said, Was the Orthodox Jewish religion considered by the Roman government as an illicit or illegal religion at this time? If not, why not? Uh, were Jews being persecuted too? It's a really good question because we're, we're putting this in context. And what I shared last week is we know that the revelation is being written during a time post-diaspora. So what that means is, you know, the, the, the church was centralized in Jerusalem to begin with. And then what happens is Rome begins to persecute the Christians. And while the apostles stay in Jerusalem, uh, the believers begin to span out, right? And as they span out, they're developing um, house churches. And so the question is, what about the Jews? Were they under persecution too? Christianity was considered a religio illicit, an illegal religion at that point, right? Interesting, Judaism was not. Judaism was considered a legal religion. Now, here's what I always tell people. That's very telling. Should it have been? Uh-uh. The Jews of all people should have been what? We will not, we will not bow down to Rome in any way, form, or fashion. But they've kind of shaken hands together and, and it, it created an alliance, if you will, that was culturally helpful to Rome because nobody gets out of hand worse than the Jews. They can create massive problems for you, and Rome knows it. So what do they say? Good. We'll be, let's be buddies. The Jews, who should be saying, we will not bow down to you, Rome, say, you know what? We, we will not speak, speak anti-against the Roman government. And so they remain a, a safe religion, a legal religion, and by the time you get to the book of Hebrews, what's going on is you have these Christians that are, that are converted in Rome, and they begin to be persecuted, so guess what they do? They go hide in, Jewish, in their Jewish temples and pretend to be Jews in order to be safe. So the context in this time is, if I'm a Christian, um, I'm in danger of, of persecution, of losing my life. Uh, if I'm a Jew, I am not being persecuted at this point in time in history. Okay. Um, second question that came in, what, what are some research materials to follow up with during the week? Uh, Wikipedia only does so much. True. Wikipedia only does so much. Problem with Revelation is there's so much bad stuff out there that I, I look at and I think, my goodness. Because we're in an evangelical marketplace, a lot of the stuff that gets marketed to you, books, etc., are not helpful. All right, so what I tend to do is to suggest that if you, want to, if you want to look at some parallel scriptures, look at Daniel and Ezekiel, because both of those are, will strengthen your understanding of Revelation. So very good to just kind of follow if you're going through the Revelation would be Daniel and Ezekiel. Books-wise, probably one of the best books to contextualize what's going on in Rome at this point in time. Um, there, there's actually two of them. 
One of them is an old book written by Paul Meyer. Paul Meyer is a, a historian. He's a Missouri Synod Lutheran guy that teaches at Eastern Michigan University. Wrote a book a long time ago. You can get it for 25 cents in the used book store uh, online called The Flames of Rome. The Flames of Rome. And if you read that book, it does a great job of taking you into the time period that we're, we're talking about. Second book that at least gives you some great context is very recent, Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus. Okay, if you haven't read that, that also gives you some really good historical context to go along with your look at Revelation. So good question. And then last but not least, someone said, if you think the early church was great, small, and in home, um, why do we think our church needs to be a large mega church? Uh, I believe several small churches are better. Do you? It's a really good question. Again, kind of putting things in context. Um, what we're talking about is as Christianity begins to spread out like this, they don't build churches, right? Um, they don't build mega churches. They don't, they don't own land or property, okay? Where do, where do they do? They meet in homes, okay? So to me, what's most significant is not the issue of size, but the issue of what, what really is the church? What is the church? And this is something that I think is, is pretty, pretty radical, but extremely important for the body of Christ to hear today, and I'm not sure that we do. Here, here's what I want you to hear today, is when you look going all the way back into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and all the way forward into the New Testament period, post-dispersion, post here's what you discover is that the, the church understands itself to be a body of believers what, which begin at home. I mean, this is, this is where church took place. And so I, I love some of the, the, the authors today that are, are calling upon the church to think of it in different terms. Here's what they would say. The first church that exists is the home. And when you, when you bring a bunch of home churches together, guess what you get? You get a gathering of home churches that we call the local congregation. Think of that. It's pretty radical. But it, may, it makes a lot of sense in the New Testament era. What if you thought of your home as a church that God has planted in a mission field? It's called your neighborhood. That's why we're taking stuff out into our neighborhoods today, right? Uh, and you saw yourself and your family saw yourself as we are missionaries to this mission field right here, our neighborhood. And it, at the family table, you're looking at how do we grow in Jesus Christ. And when you come together in this setting, guess what our job is? To strengthen your churches so that you can go impact the world. Together, when we come together, we'll go out into our neighborhood, the congregation's neighborhood, in order to make an impact for Jesus Christ. I think it's a great question. I don't know that it's an issue of size as much as it is an issue of just heart and the church, the body of Christ, recognizing who, who really are we in Jesus Christ. Not, not a building, not a place, but a body of people who God is planting all over the place to go out and to impact uh, people's lives for him. Does that make sense? Yes, Mike. As uh, men, aren't we called to be spiritual leaders of our own house anyway? Absolutely, yeah. And Mike says, are we not called to be spiritual leaders in our home? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we do it under grace, right? We're going to screw up. If you're like me, I'm going to screw up. But under the grace of Jesus Christ, yeah, how do we develop homes that are just strong in the name of Jesus Christ? I want my kids 
I want your kids, I desire for your kids to see themselves as missionaries right now. Not, hey, mom, I'm going to grow up and be a missionary. No, 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 no. We're missionaries right now. Get, look where God put us. Look who's around us. How do we go out to them? And you know, you sit down with kids, and I, you put that question in front of them. How do we go out and share Jesus? And they will, they're some of the best missionaries. What if we did this and this and this, mom, dad? Let's go, right? Does that make sense to you guys? I see some of you kind of looking at me like, huh? <laughs> My home is a church? Yes, it is. All right. Let's dig back in. Let's go over to, ch to, to chapter 1, verse number 4. I'm going to pick you guys up where we, where we are. Um, we started off last week, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And um, I did have a question come in this week that I thought was significant. Uh, what I want you to see is when you, when, you look at, when you look at numbers in Revelation or you look at symbols in Revelation, um, you, you, you have to look at them in a particular way because I'm telling you that they are symbols. So when it, says, when it says John to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, okay, that number seven is significant because every number is a symbol. So the question is, is John writing this scroll to go out to seven literal churches that are actually named. Yes. Yes. Does it stop there? No. Why? Because by this point in history, what are there? Hundreds of house churches, right? And so what will happen is the scroll will go out to these seven literal named churches that really represent regions. Will the, the scroll go out now to home church after home church after home church after home church? Yes, it will. Okay. Will it continue to go out to the body of Christ for the entire period represented by the book of Revelation? Yes, it will. Remember that the entire period that we're dealing with began with the, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, and it doesn't end until his return. So when, when it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... He's writing to seven little literal churches, but it's almost as if he's saying, John, to those people who will follow Jesus Christ, who make up his church all the way to the end of time. Okay. So the reason I love Revelation is receive it personally. Our church will receive this personally. And uh, it's almost like you're cracking the scroll open and you're reading, we're reading it for us, this word of God that's extremely old that was spoken to these seven churches and hundreds of others and now passed down over the years included in the canon of scripture for you and I. Next words that we looked at last week are grace to you and peace. And I think those are significant in the sense that when you're undergoing persecution, you're, you're starting to ask yourself the question, why? Why, God, would you allow this? Hang on to your seats and buckle up. Because what I'm going to tell you is all the way throughout the book of Revelation, you and I will be asking the question, why? Why would God allow this? We do it all the time, right? Um, I think Bill, I heard Bill this, this week stop in at one of our meetings and said, it's been a tough day. Guy driving his, 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 his car smashes into the back of a, a garbage truck and dies, 58 years old. I can guarantee you his family, who probably had a funeral this, this, this week or will next week, they're asking the question, why? 
Why would God allow that? Okay. Well, what John is saying is you're in a period of time where you're going to ask that question often. Here's what I want you to have. I want you to come underneath his grace, and I want you to have peace. And you're not going to have peace if you look for it in the wrong place. And so what he's going to try to describe to you is here, here's the Jesus who will bring you peace. That's the purpose. It's one of the reasons that he's writing the book is Jesus wants you under his grace to know that there is peace and it is only found in him. All right, now notice what happens next. There's a Trinitarian formula that gets used next, but it's, it's, it's written in such a way that you'll miss it if you don't look for it. Okay? You know how in church we'll often say we begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Okay. So when John writes the Revelation, grace and peace to you, under whose name? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But notice how he does it. It's kind of interesting. First is the Father. How does he say it? From him who is and who was and who is to come. There's the Father. There's God, right? I always point out to people, this, is a, a, this, this particular language, if you go back into the Greek, is a derivative of the verb me, which is the words that, that Moses would have heard when he stood in front of that, that bush. Remember that bush that was burning? Remember what made it burn like that? It's an angel. That's what we're told. It was an angel. He stands in front of that bush, and he's being called to go out and to speak into Pharaoh. And he, what does he say? Well, I'll do it, but, but Pharaoh, I know Pharaoh pretty well. He's going to ask, under whose authority are you speaking? So who are you? And uh, out of the bush, the angel speaks the words what? Essentially, tell tell. Tell him, I am sent you. Okay. Moses felt good about that, right? Moses went, awesome. I'm going to go in, I'm going to meet with Pharaoh and say, I am sent me. What? <laughs> um, but what is he saying is, he's pointing to God, the one who, who honed his being, Hain was being, Erkamanos, is 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 going to be, is coming, right? And so he's simply saying, under the authority of God, this scroll is being written. That, that's the Father. Where's the, where's the Son and the Spirit? Notice the next words. And, there's the and, the conjunction, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I, lo I love this. The seven spirits who are before his throne. Um, it's a picture of, guess who? Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Well, the picture that he's given us actually takes us back to Exodus uh, 25 where uh, the instruction was given by God, how do you, how do you make my tabernacle? Right? What, what are the components of it? And remember, one of the components of the tabernacle was this, this lampstand, if you will, that has seven candles on it. The first one goes up like that. And then you have the six that come out like that, right? And uh, what most people don't recognize and what the Jews really didn't recognize is that, that that number, seven, was significant. Why? We'll keep coming back to it. Who does it represent, guys? Jesus Christ. Okay? So you always think seven, I'll keep doing this and you'll get it, is the four corners of the earth, 
all right? And then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God comes into the earth, how does he come? As a little baby boy, Jesus Christ. Seven all the way throughout the Bible, all the way throughout the Old Testament, into the New Testament, always is pointing to Jesus Christ. So when you went into the temple and you saw this sevenfold lampstand, all right, it's pointing to Jesus Christ, but guess what's keeping, guess what's keeping it burning? Oil. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. And what I love about that picture is here in John, he says he represents it as before the throne of the one who, who was being and who is being and who is going to continue to be is the Spirit of God, right? The seven lampstands. And guess what the, the Holy Spirit's job is? To connect you and I to who? To Jesus, right? And so you have this Trinitarian formula being you know, spoken by John in symbols so that people can begin to see it. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Spirit, and then you get what? And, here's the next conjunction, from who? Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Okay? So I'm asking the question of John, under whose authority is this scroll written? And he's saying, well, it's written under the authority of, of the one who holds all of history in his hand, of the Spirit of God who attests to Jesus Christ, who is the faithful, he came and he did the work God called him to, witness, testifier, to what? To the freedom that we have in God. Okay? I, I love the next words that are used of Jesus Christ here. Just think of them as a painting. To the faithful witness, Jesus, who is the firstborn of the dead. I love that language. Here's why. In Greek, that word firstborn is protokos. Okay? Protokos literally means the one who first breaks the womb. That's your firstborn. When you apply it in this particular context, the firstborn of those who are dead, guess what the womb is? It's death. It's the tomb. So what they're saying is Jesus Christ is a faithful witness. He is the one who is the first person, human being in history, to break the womb of death, to show us how to get out of death. Why, why is that important to me if I'm reading this? <laughs> Chances are good that what? Chances are actually 100% that what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die, right? Okay. I might die in this persecution. What he's saying is the faithful witness, the one who who took God's promise, the one that he made in the garden, and testified to it, who was faithful to go to a cross. He came and he did what he broke the womb. He's the first one to come through death. So though you may die in this persecution that's going on, here's the good news. You will live forever. He's the first of us to do that. Okay? Uh, the first human being to die and be resurrected, and what else? And never die again. You have resurrections prior to Jesus' resurrection, right? But every single person who is resurrected, like Lazarus, guess what happens to them? They die again. Not Jesus. The first one to break the womb of death. And then uh, the last part, I think, is also pretty doggone significant. And the ruler of the kings of earth. That Don't miss this. This is important. He's the, he's the one who testified to the promise of God, fulfilled that promise on a cross, 
broke the womb of death, and he rules, he is the ruler of all the kings of what? Of the earth. The word that's used here in, uh, in Greek is the word archon. We kind of hear it when we use the word architect. Archon, architect. The one who made it. Right? Um, the one who, who authorized it, if you will. Here's what's significant about it. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the one to break the tomb, and he is the one who rules over the kings of the earth. Why is that significant? Come back to the central question that I'm asking. Why? Why are you letting this persecution happen? God, God isn't this true? God could have, if he wanted to, said, no more persecution. Isn't that true? Could God not do anything he wants to do? Shut it down. Right? Here, here's the thought I want, to, I want you to have as you, as you think about this. He doesn't do that. Nothing in the book of Revelation that happens, happens without the authorization of Jesus Christ. Who authorized persecution? Jesus Christ. No king on earth to this very day, no king on earth has their authority except what? Under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, when he writes the book of Romans, encourages us as Christians to do what? To pray for our leaders, right? Because we are praying that our leaders do what? Open up the way for the gospel to be freely preached. And um, we are, but we are recognizing, oh, I'm, so there's, I'm not going to get political on you guys, I promise. But aren't, isn't it true there are some rulers, some leaders, even in America, that we ask ourselves, why would you let that person have that job? Have you ever found yourself saying that? But, but follow me now. The only reason they can have that job is it's authorized by God. And so uh, what, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you peace and I'm going to give you grace. That peace is not going to come politically. It won't come politically. It's going to come a different way. It's going to come through a cross. Uh, by the way, God is saying, I, I am the one who rules over those political rulers and, and this stuff that's going on all the way to the end of time. I've authorized and I've purposed it. I'm going to use it for a reason, and it's a kingdom reason. All the way throughout the book of Revelation, here's, here's just a simple thought for you. Look at how God uses persecution. When you look at all of history, and you look at the times that the church of Jesus Christ is the strongest. When is it? It's always under persecution. I have had people come to me, you know, for years now and say, Pastor Luke, maybe what we need to pray for in America is persecution. <coughs> me, my human self, I'm like, no, 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 no. We don't want persecution, right? But the reality is, you come before God and you realize how he has used throughout history these very hard times to bring people to himself. In the end times, he's telling you flat out, it will get harder and harder and harder and harder. And so, trust me, is what Jesus is saying. All of it's authorized under my hand, and I will use every single bit of it for a kingdom purpose, and that is to bring people to me. All right? How do we know that? Well, look at the very next words. To him who loves us. Yep, I've, 
I am the ruler over the kings. But what I'm doing, I do in love. I haven't stopped loving it. We, our human minds will never get that. I, I'm, I'm just convinced of it. When we go through tough stuff, yucky stuff, and we're saying, God, why would you do that? Our minds can't comprehend a God who looks at us and says, because I love you. We're like, no, 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 God. You do, that's not love. God says, yes, it is. It's my love for you. It's a covenantal love. It's not a fuzzy Western emotional love. It's covenantal love. I will do everything that I do. God promises it. You're going through some tough stuff in your life right now? Recognize this. God authorized it. He will use it, and he does love you. And that's his promise to us. That's how the book of Revelation is beginning. To him who loves us and has freed us, freed us from our sins by his blood. Okay? So what Jesus Christ has done is come into this world not to take away persecution and not to take away some of the hard stuff that happens in our life, but to do to what? To take away death. Thus I broke the womb of death. And to take away that thing that can enslave you, namely your sins. I freed you from them by my blood. Okay? And then notice these next words because I, I just think that they're, they're awfully significant. And has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Okay? Back to where we started with that question that, that someone sent in. Every one of us is being made into a priest when we come underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. Okay. What do priests do, by the way? What does a priest do? I think I saw this, this, uh, this word when we were in Rome, you know, here a little while back. Um, I kind of thought it was fun. I'd walk around and try to read the Greek words and the Hebrew words and the, the Latin words. And so I see this, this word. And, uh, and, and Anne says to me, what, what is that word, you know? And I say, well, that, that word is pontifex. And a lot of times you'll, you'll hear that word used of the Pope, right? Pontifex Rex, the king of the pontifexes. What does it mean, a pontifex? Literally translated as a Latin word, literally translated, you know what it means? The one who builds a bridge. Okay. So what did priests do? Priests did nothing, really. Honestly, I mean, that's their calling. Priests don't do anything. But they do what? They build a bridge to who? The one who does it all, Jesus Christ. Okay? So I, I like to say it this way. When pe people ask me, they'll say, Pastor Luke, what is your job? I'm a pontifex. I need to get like a name badge. It just says pontifex. Would that be cool? Get like a pontifex badge? That'd be, that'd be awesome. And what, what do you do? Nothing. Man, I would like to get a job like that too, right? Of course, I, I, still, I still haven't got it yet, but I, I'm going to get a sign one of these days from my desk that says, uh, my job is so top secret, not even I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, um, but what he's saying, and it kind of goes back to that thing, is every one of us are being made what a whole kingdom of bridge builders, of priests, of people who connect other people to Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because it's your only hope. So as I'm going out into a world that's persecuting me, everything inside of me says, I hate these people out there. I hate you. The Spirit of God is taking that hatred and saying, no, 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 no. 
love these people the same way that Jesus Christ has loved you. You're, you're a bridge builder. Go out and lead these people to know Jesus Christ. It's why when you study history, some, some of my favorite stories are Colosseum stories where you see these, these Christians that are being killed in front of a large group of people, right? That was sport in Rome. And they get into the middle of that Colosseum, and you know what they're doing? Praying for the people that are killing them and singing hymns. And you'll see a number of stories recorded extra-biblically of Christians who sang and prayed for the people that were killing them. And you know what happened to the Colosseums? People started going home. They started saying, this is no sport. Look at those people. They're out there. They're praying. And uh, did God use that in an impactful way? Yes, he did. He called the Christians during the worst, one of the worst times in all of history. This is who God has made you to be. Bridge builders go out and lead people to know me because it is their only hope. So it's how he's made us. So we are made to be a kingdom of priests to, to his God and Father. To him, to God, the Father, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Question, where do you find the Lord's Prayer in the Bible? You know what happens to Lutherans? We don't know our Bibles. We know our catechisms. And our catechisms chop the Bible up into little pieces. And I hope for our kids' sake that we, we you know, go ahead and use the catechism. I hope for our, our kids' sake we use Bibles because we've got to learn the Bible. You're going to find it, you know, the shorter version of it is in Luke 11, right? And uh, then Mark, Mark uh, carries a little bit longer version. Most of us uh, know the Lord's Prayer pretty well. By the way, it's just a phenomenal thing. When Jesus was asked to teach the Lord's Prayer, he gave to his disciples and they gave to other people a prayer that if you really, if you really learn it, it just completely transforms the way you think about God. It, re it really does. But it doesn't have in it, in the Bible, the words that you say when you speak the Lord's Prayer. Because I've heard you speak it before. In fact, I've done it with you. But the words that we use are not all in the Bible. You realize that, don't you? So there's, there's kind of an ending to the Lord's Prayer that, that we say that's not actually included in the Gospel accounts. What is it? For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. How did that get into the Lord's Prayer? What was actually added to it? Most historians will point back to the first century. You'll find a book of teachings called the Didache. Didache is a teachings book that really was meant to be apostolic, and it's there that you find those words added. Guess what? They, come, they do come from the Bible. Look at these words again. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And that's where the early apostles took those words and said, as we close out the prayer that Jesus has given us, let's add to them this idea that there's a purpose in our prayer. We're bringing people to know Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's a God who was being, is being, was being, and always will be. He is the God who holds all of history in his hands. And what we have been called to do as a kingdom of priests is to go out and to bring people under him so to, that to him be the glory. Do I really bring someone to Jesus Christ? No. He brings them. I'm the bridge builder. I do nothing. 
He brings them to know him, and they will be under his dominion. He is a king forever and ever. Very significant, and, and I'll really challenge your, your, your thinking as we get into this book deeper. Very significant to me is the fact that most of us as Christians run around with a very incorrect idea of heaven in our minds. We really do. Very, very much a part of the book of Revelation is going to be this idea that we, we will live with a God who will have dominion in our lives forever and ever in a really cool way. Like I say, I will, I will challenge your thinking on traditional Christians' ideas of heaven as we get into this book. But it starts here. He, he is the one that gets the glory for bringing people to him to be a God who will rule over them and have dominion forever and ever. And now you get this Greek word, amen. What does it mean? Every time you say amen, it translates over into English. Yes. True. Let it be. Okay. Any of you guys as old as me watch Star Trek? Remember that? Let it be as you've said, you know, Jim. You know? <laughs> well, that's what you're saying to God is, let it be just the way that you've spoken. Amen. Now, next words. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Remember when uh, Caiaphas asked Jesus Christ, you know, are you a king? And Jesus was talking to Caiaphas about who he was. He said, behold, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Okay. And he was pointing to the reality that the, the time of our history, all of the history of the earth under this epoch that we're in, concludes with what the trumpet and the coming of Jesus Christ who will come on the clouds. And I love these words, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Okay. You know it's miraculous, right? Because if you take the globe, the earth, and you have somebody coming on the clouds, how can everybody see him? Okay. Well, as we get into it, you'll see why you can see him. Okay. Uh, because something's happening to the earth. Um, but every eye will see him coming on the clouds. And notice this. Even those who pierced him, those who killed him, and all the tribes of the earth. The tribes of the earth are people who are what? Outside of salvation. Why would I say that to you? To reinforce what I've just said to you. During this time period of persecution all the way to the end, you all go out there and be what? A kingdom of priests to lead people to this God who has broken the seals of death, who set you free from the bondage of sin, right? who wants you to be under his dominion forever and ever. You bring them there because guess what? On that day when he comes, remember how Paul says this in Philippians? Every knee will do what? Will bow to Jesus Christ, including those who do this. Oh, they'll see their sin. And on that day, guess what? Excluded. Excluded from eternity with God. Okay? I am always asking this question inside of churches because I've got to just tell you right now, churches drive me insane. They really, they really drive me insane. Not, not the church, not what God calls the church, but, but you know what I'm talking about. Churches that, that become institutions lose their sense of fervency and, and urgency. 
they lose it. I often, I ask myself, how did this happen? That a body of people who follow Jesus Christ lost that sense of urgency that mo moves you to know as a, as a priest, right? I mean, that's what you are. You're, you're a kingdom priest. Your home is a priest. What would move us to live in our neighborhoods where there are people who, when that day comes, if they're like they are right now outside of, of the grace of Jesus Christ, guess what? Oh, I pierced him. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the tribes of earth. And guess what? I'm now outside of salvation for eternity. What happens inside of the bodies that we lose that sense of urgency? Um, here's how I've experienced it as a pastor. You go, you go into, you go to a pastor's conference or something, you know, and people size you up right away, you know. They're like, there, there's that guy Biggs. I wonder if he's big. You know, they're like, okay. <laughs> they're looking at you. First thing that people will ask, Terry, you remember this, you go into these conferences, the first thing people ask you as a pastor, another pastor will ask you, hey, I'm Pastor Joe or, or whatever, uh, um, uh, what do you worship? Now, what are they actually asking you? What are they asking you? Remember this, Terry? How many people are in your worship service? Why are they asking you that? See if they're bigger than Biggs. That's right. They want to know that, right? I'm just gonna I'm gonna size you up, and I want to know that how how big how big are you? So I've I've kind of adopted a new a new phrase. People go, "What do you worship?" I'm like Jesus. <laughs> I do that, by the way, with styles of worship. It cracks me up that we have all these labels for. So what kind of worship do you have? When people ask me that, I'll just tell you this now, so you can you can fire me if you want to. But when people ask me at peace, what what styles of service do you have? I go Jesus styles. They're like, well, what's that? I go, well, it's whether you worship Jesus. I mean, that's kind of what you do. Doesn't, doesn't matter to me. You can stick me over there, over there, over there. I'm just going to worship Jesus, right? It, it doesn't matter to me. But it's true, isn't it? So, in this thing called the church body, let's just take the Missouri Synod as a small sample of 6,500 churches across the nation of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know, as you sit here today, you've got 6,500 mission posts that are filled with thousands of, guess what, churches that are in neighborhoods out there being a kingdom of priests. How many people would you say are being brought into and under the dominion of Jesus Christ on an annual basis? Well, thank God it's not none. <laughs> that number is minuscule. And here's what, I, I'm getting old. I'm getting old now. I'm like, hey, guess what? I'm getting old, and this is not good. Why is it that a kingdom of priests are positioned by God exactly where he wants them, in these neighborhoods and, 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 and these bodies and neighborhoods, and, and folks are not, we're bridge builders. We connect people to Jesus Christ who in turn does what? Set you free. And I just think about that sense of urgency that... Um, ought to just live inside of us in such a way that we find ourselves going, yes, Lord, uh, send me, because we are, we are all part of that, those mission fields that God has called us into. And so when I, when I read these words, they hurt. They really do hurt. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, including those who are tribes of the earth. And guess what it finally says? They will wail on account of him. They will wail on account of him. Um, I'll start to close with this. This is very interesting to me. I had the opportunity to 
serve a lot of Sudanese families uh, in Lincoln when we were there. And just so happens one of, one of the Sudanese men died during the time we were ministering uh, together. His name was Bwai. It, uh, it literally translates Luke. He had a virus in his heart. He was out just handing out um, flyers in his neighborhood and fell over death. The men of the Sudanese community came to me and they said, um, Pastor Luke, we need you to help us. Uh, Bwai has died and we need to have a funeral and we have no money. I said, okay. So I got in a car and I went with this group of Sudanese guys. We went to a funeral home and we sat down and I said, here's the deal. The Sudanese, they, they, they can't, they don't practice um, uh, incinerating a body. They, they won't do it. It's against their culture. So you got to put them in a casket. So I remember saying to the funeral director, I said, I want, the, I want a good deal. I'm not going to, we're not here to rob you. We're Christians. But I want the, the best price you can possibly give us for this burial. And they, they said, okay. And they really came through. Uh, our congregation came through. Uh, the early service uh, paid for the funeral. I was asked by um, we all, means John, to preach at it. And his words are still emblazoned in my mind because they're actually true. I like them. I said, we all, how can I preach at this thing? Because um, I, I, I don't know your culture the way that you know your culture. You're going to you have to have a translator. Why don't we have a Sudanese guy preach at this thing? And I remember him looking at me. He says, Pastor Luke, you will preach. And the people will forgive you. And thus he has summed up my entire life as a pastor. I will preach and the people will forgive me. That, that day was like a, like a five-hour funeral service. I mean, people kept coming and going. And we just kept talking the word of God. And at the end of the day, we had the burial. And the women, their role is to wail. And you cannot leave the cemetery until all the dirt is piled up on the casket. And so for like an hour, the funeral people are like, just go home. Just go, nope, they're not going home. They're going to be right here. And the women are like, Wah! and I'm like, holy smokes. And uh, they're wailing. But what this is saying to me, and I, I just want you to leave on this note, keep this in your, keep this in your mind, this is, a, this is a good stopping place for us, is the people, I want you just to hear them, that cry at the end of time. We don't know him. We will not be with him in eternity. And it's a horrible, horrible sound. And what the revelationist is doing, he's saying, John is saying, let that sound come into your ears. This is why, even in the midst of persecution, our role as, as a kingdom of priests is to go out. And let the Spirit of God just use you as a bridge builder to connect people to Jesus Christ because he is protocost, the one who has broken the seals of death, who by his blood has set you free from the bondage of sin. Who does not need that? Everyone needs that. That's who Jesus Christ is. This is who you are. And by the way, all of this is happening under the dominion and authority of Jesus himself, including the persecution which he'll use to bring him more into his kingdom. And then notice the last words. Even so, let it be. Amen. Let it be. And so John opens up this, this, uh, this part of the revelation by pointing us firmly to Jesus Christ 
and what's going on even in the culture of his time. And I would maintain that in our world today, more than ever before, we ought to hear that sound of wailing and say, what can we do? What must we do to win others to know him as Lord and Savior? I really, really thank you guys for coming to this. I, my prayer is that this book just gets inside of you, that you actually start hearing that sound. Hear it. Hear it. And uh, next week we'll get into this picture of Jesus that's like none other as John meets the one who is speaking to him, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, as we uh, close out this morning, my prayer is that you let us just hear that sound, that wail, and know, and know, Lord, that, that you are a God who's called us, uh, positioned us, placed us in, into our neighborhoods as a kingdom of priests. We do nothing. You do it all. But Lord, through us, we see neighbors, we see people in our own families. We see people that we know that are apart from you. And we don't want the trumpet to blow until they know you. Lord God, we don't have the strength. We don't know how. But we will entrust ourselves to you that you might use us to lead others to know you. To you be the dominion and the glory forever and ever. Amen.